Turn, if you would, to the sixth chapter of the book of Ephesians. This is our 15th lesson in the book of Ephesians. We will have one more next week and we will be done. Uh, last week, we finished off our discussion uh, about our relationships and how we have responsibilities within those relationships. And the conclusion of last week's lesson was, do everything that you do as to the Lord, not to man. When we are serving in our husband-wife relationship, when we are serving in our parent-child relationship, when are we are serving in our uh, employer, employee, church, citizen, whatever the relationship is, do what you do to the glory of God and not to man. So that brings us to uh, verse 10 of chapter 6. And I was really looking forward to this lesson today. It's a very famous passage. We're going to talk about the armor of God. But I had a problem. I had a problem because before I got to the armor of God, I had to convince myself of something. And I'm not sure I've convinced myself of it. So I need to work on it, and we all need to work on it. I am reminded of an illustration that a uh, pastor used one time that I really thought was interesting. Many of us, probably all of us, have been on a commercial airplane at some point in our life. And you remember you're sitting on the airplane and the stewardess comes over the speaker and starts giving you the um, safety instructions. You know, if the airplane crashes, do this. If it lands on water, put on your life vest, do this. And if you're like me, you ignore everything that she says. You've heard it before. You're not interested. The odds of the airplane crashing are pretty much nil. Airplanes do crash, but actually not that often. So you sit there and you read your magazine or your book or you look at your phone and you kind of ignore the message. Well, let's say that the stewardess gets on the speaker and says, okay, there's a parachute underneath your chair and I'm going to tell you how to use it. Well, once again, we'd be tempted to just ignore what she was saying. But what if in the middle of the flight... She comes on the speaker and says, this airplane is going to crash in 10 minutes. There's a parachute underneath your seat, and I'm going to tell you how to use it. All of a sudden, that information, how to operate the parachute, becomes very critical for your entire life. It becomes so critical that for that brief moment, your mind is totally focused on how do I operate the parachute. So here's the question. Before we get to putting on the armor of God, do we understand that we're fighting a battle? Or do we think that, oh yes, this is a nice passage, and it's like the safety ins uh, instructions on the airplane. Oh, I've heard it before. It's no big deal. Before we can understand the importance of putting on the entire armor of God, we have to understand why we need the armor. We have to understand that we are engaged in a battle. We need to understand that we are engaged in a struggle and that God has provided us with what we need for that particular struggle. Do we understand that? Can we appreciate that? I have oftentimes quoted uh, the passage from A.W. Tozer from his uh, book, The World Playground or Battleground. And he says that in the early days, he's actually talking about the early days of our country, when Christianity exercised a dominant influence over American thinking, men conceived the world to be a battleground. However, Today, things are different. The fact remains the same, but the interpretation has changed completely. Men think the world not as a battleground, but as a playground. We are not here to fight. We are here to frolic. I was also reading this week from uh, Erasmus's book, The Handbook of the Militant Christian, written in 1503. He says, to begin with, we must constantly be aware of the fact that life here below is best described as a type of continual warfare. 
Yet in this matter, the great majority of mankind is often deceived. For the world, like some deceitful magician, captivates their minds with seductive blasphemies, And as a result, most individuals behave as if there has been a cessation of hostilities. As I was working through this passage, the thing that I struggled with is, do I really believe that we are engaged in conflict with the enemy? Because this passage is going to talk about that conflict. It's going to talk about who we are in conflict with, and it's not who we think it is. And then it's going to tell us, here's what you need. Here's what God has given you for that fight. I am reminded, if uh, you remember, and you do, because we're all old enough to remember, uh, the hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers. Onward Christian Soldiers marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ the royal master leads against the foe, forward into battle, see his banner go. And it goes on for several more verses. Well, did you know that this song has actually been removed from several uh, hymnals because it's just too militant. It's too militaristic. It may make you think that there's a war going on. Yet, those of previous generations understood that we were in a conflict. We were in a conflict and we needed to be prepared for that battle. So if I could do one thing today... That is to convince you that life is not a playground, but it is a battleground between cosmic forces. So, verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, point number one, we are engaged in a battle. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Finally, that's like the conclusion, the conclusion of everything that he has said in this book. What has he said in this book? Well, he's talked about salvation. He's talked about the church. He's talked about the fact that Gentiles and Jews are brought together in a new thing called the church, the body of Christ. He's talked about how we are to live our lives. And after saying all of this, what he encourages us to do is to be strong in the Lord, to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of our might. No, in the strength of his might. We need strength so that we can withstand what the devil is going to put into our lives. So, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. What kind of strength do we need? Is this physical strength? Well, physical strength is good. We shouldn't uh, run away from physical strength. Is it emotional strength? Well, that's good too. But First and foremost, it is spiritual strength. And we're going to talk about that throughout this lesson. So, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. God has given you armor, protection. He's given you what you need to defend yourself against the devil. Notice this passage. We are told, we are told to put on the armor of God. It is his armor, and we've been told to put it on. This is the process of sanctification. This is God working out in us what he put in us when we were declared right before God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. We are to put on the whole armor of God. There's going to be several elements to this armor. And if you say, well, I like that one. I don't like that one. I like that. Well, that one's kind of uncomfortable. Back to our illustration a while ago about the airplane. 
The stewardess gets on the airplane at the very beginning and she goes through the thing and she says, put on your parachute. Well, you're sitting there on a perfectly safe airplane flying through the air. And you know what? This parachute's very bulky. It's kind of impeding you. I mean, the, the, the seats are close enough together as it is, much less with this bulky parachute on. It's just uncomfortable. So you choose to take it off and throw it away. But then you realize the airplane is about to crash. And then you go looking for it. And the fact that it is uncomfortable is irrelevant to your thoughts about that parachute. The same is true of the armor of God. We want to pick and choose. I want a little bit of that, a little bit of that. But he has provided everything that we need for our protection. Who are we fighting against? That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, who in the world is the devil? It is interesting because in today's world... Uh, sometimes, you know, it's just not uh, considered logical to think about the devil. Um, I was reading a uh, magazine article a while back, and he was talking about, well, the fantasy land that many of us live in. And it was actually an interesting article because he started off in a good place. He started off talking about the 60s and this idea that you can be anything that you want to be. But then he gets around to his examples, and guess what one of his examples is? Did you know that there's two billion people in the world who are stupid enough to believe in the reality of the devil? Well, guess what? The scripture clearly tells us about the devil, who he is, what he's doing, and how we are to stand against him. But let's refresh ourselves just a moment. C.S. Lewis, in his wonderful book, The Screwtape Letters, in the introduction, before he actually starts the letters, you're familiar with what the letters are. The letters are letters written from a senior demon to a junior demon on how to tempt a particular person. And they're just very insightful about how the devil tempts us. But in the introduction... C.S. Lewis says there's two problems that we normally run into as moderns. One is to pretend the devil doesn't exist. And second, to think that he does exist and then to give him too much power and authority. We oftentimes have in our minds that here's God and here's Satan. And they are at war with each other. They are equal beings struggling in a cosmic struggle for the soul of mankind. There is actually a religion that teaches that. It's called Zoroasterism. It was very popular in ancient Persia, and there are still a certain number of Zoroastrians uh, around today. But, biblically, God is the only non-created being. He is the only necessary being. He stands above everything. And he created angels, and he created humanity, and he created everything else that you and I see in the world around us today. The devil is an angel who has chosen to rebel against God. We are told in the scriptures that a group, maybe a third of the angels, rebelled against God, and that Satan... The devil is the head of that group of angels. If you really wanted to build a parallel, C.S. Lewis points out that God is not, I mean, the devil is not the antithesis of God. He is the antithesis of Michael the archangel. Archangel. They are angels. They are created beings. And God has given the devil certain play in the world in which we live today. He is the enemy that we are at war with. So, we need the armor of God because the temptation is real and the battle is real. So, we need to put on the armor so that we are able to stand 
against the schemes of the devil. So what are the schemes of the devil? Well, we could come up with long list because there's actually lots to discuss there. But let's just look at two biblical examples. We have two very clear biblical examples where Satan directly tempted someone. One of them was the temptation of Jesus Christ. Remember, after Jesus was baptized, he went out into the wilderness for 40 days. He went out into the wilderness and he did not eat or drink. He was praying and meditating with the Father. And at the end of that period, Satan comes to him to tempt him. So after, this is the Luke passage, Luke chapter 4. After 40 days, being tempted by the devil, he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. That's simple enough, right? Well, it would be impossible for you and me. But Satan knows who this is, and he knows that Jesus does in fact have the ability to turn that stone into a loaf of bread. You and I couldn't do that. So Satan says, okay, 40 days is up. We've been having this battle. Now you're hungry. I know you're hungry. You know you're hungry. There's the rock. Turn it into bread. But Jesus refuses to do it. Why? Why does he refuse? Is it wrong for him to eat? No. Is it wrong for him to use the powers that he has? <gasps> Maybe. That is the thing that we need to understand. Because you see, Jesus had put himself under the authority of God the Father. He was not going to use his divine attributes, and he did have them. He was not going to use his divine attributes unless directed by the Father. Satan didn't care what Jesus did, as long as it wasn't what God wanted him to do at that point. So what does Jesus say? And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. I need to live by something greater than just filling my belly, even though, even though I am in fact hungry. And if you continued in this passage, you see two more examples of Satan tempting Jesus, and each time Jesus responds with scripture. So the scheme of the devil is to try to get Jesus. The scheme of the devil is to try to get us to do something outside of the will of the Father. In one sense, it doesn't matter what it is, as long as it's outside the will of God. And each time, Jesus responded to these temptations by quoting Scripture back to Satan. Now, the second illustration of a direct temptation was when the devil confronted Eve in the garden. Remember this, right? It's Genesis chapter 3. God has created everything. He's declared everything to be good, except there was one tree from which Adam and Eve were not supposed to eat. Traditionally, we refer to this as an apple. It probably wasn't an apple, and there's nothing in the passage that says. All it was was some fruit. And God said, don't touch it. So the devil comes to Eve and says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice what he's saying. He's wanting her to question, did God really say? What does God really want you to do? You know, it's kind of vague, isn't it? Well, it really isn't that vague. God had given them very clear instructions about what they could eat, everything else, and what they couldn't eat, 
this one thing. And Eve almost remembers that. Almost. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So she got part of it right. She was told not to eat it. But she adds this, but I shouldn't touch it either. Then Satan goes on and says, you know what? God's really not telling you the whole story. You're not going to die. For God knows that when you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. What are the schemes of the devil? He, is, he wants us to misunderstand the word of God. He wants us to misapply the word of God. And he wants us to think that God is not looking out for our best. Look at this passage. Eve, God is keeping you from being all that you can be. And that is the scheme of the devil. The scheme of the devil says, don't trust God. Don't believe God. Do what you want to do. And unlike Jesus Christ, Eve succumbed to the temptation of Satan and brought sin into this world. So, we are told, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in heavenly places. So, who are we fighting against? It's important that we understand this. We are fighting against spiritual beings in a spiritual fight. This is interesting, this list. Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers in the present darkness, spiritual forces of evil. Uh, the idea of rulers and authorities, um, usually these are considered to be some type of order of, of uh, demons. You know, there are is a hierarchy of the demonic world. And authorities and rulers are certain demons on this hierarchy. It doesn't really matter the structure of that hierarchy, except to say that there is a huge number of demonic forces that we have to be at war against. But we are not wrestling against flesh and blood. Guess what? That person down the street who disagrees with your understanding of biblical anything, they are not the enemy. The demonic forces that are alive and well in the world today are the problem. Now, we have problems with this. I have problem with this because oftentimes what we actually see are people being misled by these false teachings. So we begin to think, if I can get rid of that person, then I will get rid of that idea. Well, that isn't the way it works. We are to, what? Look out for the good of our enemy. <gasps> That's strange. Because we recognize that they are being held captive by spiritual forces. We need to understand that the battle is bigger than we think it is. It isn't with that neighbor down the street. That's just the appearance of the battle. And I'm not saying it's not real. You really do have a struggle with your neighbor. But the real struggle is in the spiritual realms, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This phrase, the heavenly places, is actually kind of interesting because if you remember, we've used this phrase five times in the book of Ephesians. In the very beginning, in verse three of the book, we are told that we have blessings in heavenly places. In verse 20 of chapter one, we are told that Jesus is seated in the heavenly places. 
we are told that we have been raised from the dead and we ourselves are seated in heavenly places. We see that God's wisdom is revealed to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And now all of a sudden we see that there is a war in the heavenly places. What does this mean? It means that it is a spiritual battle. You see, if all it said was there was a war in the earthly places, then you and I would begin to think, ah, I know that person over there is the enemy. I know I have to deal with them. But when it says that it is in the heavenly places, we know that he's talking about a spiritual battle. We need to understand it is a spiritual battle. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. He repeats this again. We need to take up, we need to put on the armor that God has provided. It's not up, for you, up to you to run out to your garage and somehow manufacture some armor. The armor is there. We are to put it on. We are to take what God has provided and use it in this spiritual warfare. If Eve had correctly responded to what God had told her to do, the devil would not have won the battle. If we take up the armor of God, we too will be able to withstand the devil in the evil day. So what is the evil day? Well, the evil day is now. The evil day is tomorrow. If the Lord doesn't return, Sufficient unto the day are, is the evil therein. You see, we are continually in the battle. Now, there may be times when the temptation is so overt that you go, wow, this is a real spiritual battle. But there are other times where the battle is so subtle that you don't even see it. We could have a long discussion, if, I, if we wanted to, about C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters and his understanding of how demonic temptation occurs. And the senior demon tells the junior de demon, it doesn't matter how big the sin is. We don't have to get them to do some really big, glaring sin. Little sins will do. Just let them pile up. Every day, we are in a struggle. We are in a struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we need to put on the armor of God so that at the end of the day, we can stand firm. What does it mean to stand? Well, we spent the last several weeks talking about God putting you in certain relationships. Remember, it's marriage, it's raising kids, it's being a parent, it's being a child, it's being an employer, employee. And I said, those were just the examples. You are a citizen, or you are a member of the church, or you are a leader in the church, or you're a leader in the government. God has put you in a certain place. What are you supposed to do in that place? Stand firm on the word of God. What does God want you to do at that place in your life? What he doesn't want you to do is go, oh, this is hard. I'm going to run away. Oh, this is uncomfortable. I'm going to run away. Oh, and walk away from the place that God has put you. We are to stand firm. Now, before we get too much further down this path, we need to talk about battles. Not just any battle. Remember, one commentary pointed this out, and I thought it was kind of interesting. Remember, at this point in time, Paul is in prison, and probably he's chained to a Roman soldier. Now, we have talked about this before, because I think the Roman soldier didn't stand a chance. 
I mean, how would you like to be chained to the Apostle Paul for four hours at a time? He's going to convert every one of them. But while he's sitting there chained, he's sitting there looking at that Roman soldier. That Roman soldier has a helmet, he has a breastplate, he has a shield, probably sitting over the side, he has a sword, he has a belt, he has shoes on, and he looks at that. And if I were him, I would strike up a conversation. Hey, what do you do with that helmet? Why do you have that helmet on? And he takes that and he puts it into this passage and helps us to understand what God has provided for us. But if you're a Roman soldier in a battle, your number one job is to stand in the place that the centurion or the general has placed you. Because I'm standing there with my shield, another guy is standing on my right, and another guy is standing on my left, and as long as we stand together, we can't be broken. What you need to do is to stand where God has put you. We need to understand that. Okay, so what is the armor of God? Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and put on the breastplate of righteousness. We're going to see these individual elements of the Roman armor, and Paul is going to use them to tell us what God has provided us so that we can stand when the devil attacks us. And he begins with the belt of truth. Okay, you and I think of belts. You know, they're thin leather things. They go around and they hold our pants up so our pants don't fall down. Well, that's important that your pants don't fall down. It's very important in the middle of a battle. But this belt is more than that. This is a thick belt that is protecting your midsection. It's protecting your midsection. It's kind of going down to probably protect to your knees. And it's the place where you hang everything else onto. So it is keeping your garment from getting in your way as you're maneuvering. It's keeping your equipment ready for you. And it's protecting your midsection and probably down to about your knees. We need to stand having fastened on the belt of truth. I cannot begin to tell you how important this idea is. If you remember back to our discussion of worldviews that we had before we began the book of Ephesians, we had a lot of discussion about truth because our world today does not really believe in truth. We believe in your truth, and we believe in my truth, and we believe that everybody has their truth. But when we talk about truth from a biblical perspective, we're talking about God's truth. We're talking about God telling us how the world really works. So, we are fastening ourselves about with the truth that God has given us. He has given it, given it to us in his word, and we are to use that to tie everything together, to keep the robes from flapping around, and to protect us in the middle of who we are. We need to understand that God's truth is more than just somebody's opinion. It is God's truth. If we don't have truth, we have nothing to begin with because all the rest of this doesn't make sense. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. What's a breastplate? Well, that's this big thing that hangs in front of you. You know, you and I are used to seeing uh, medieval knights and they've got these big metal plates in front of them. And in fact, if you look at troops in a modern battle, they have, you know, their flak jackets or their metal uh, vest on to protect them. It is protecting all their vital organs. You know, it is interesting that as you look at casualties in modern wars versus, say, the American Civil War, um, we have greatly increased our medical proficiency. But what we've also done is made sure that if you get shot, 
in a modern war, they may hit you in the arm, they may hit you in the leg, and worst case, you're going to lose that arm or leg. But your midsection is protected. The place where all the vital organs are. And we're going to talk in a moment about the helmet. So the purpose of the breastplate is to protect your chest and your vital organs from attack by the enemy. So having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now it is interesting discussion here because if I were going to look at this passage to begin with, I would think, okay, this is the righteousness of Christ that has been given to us. And you know what? That's true. We are told in the book of Romans that we have received the righteousness of Christ. It is imputed. It is given to us. But most theologians believe that that refers a couple of verses from now when we talk about salvation, what God has given us. They oftentimes think that this righteousness is really the righteousness that God has worked out in our lives. Remember, God puts it in, and the process of sanctification is us working that out. We are supposed to be righteous. We are declared righteous by the finished work of Jesus Christ. In the eyes of God, we can enter the presence of a holy God because of the righteousness of Christ. But we are told to do righteous things. We are to, told to do that which is right in the eyes of God. And guess what? When we do those things that are right in the eyes of God, it protects us from a lot of the arrows and, as we're going to see, the schemes of the devil. You know, it's when you and I start, well, cutting corners. I, I want to do what God wants me to do, but I also want to do this over here, and I want to do that over there, and I merge them all together, and all of a sudden I am exposed to the condemnation of this world. We need to take the righteousness that God, Christ has given us, we need to work that out in our everyday life, and that will protect us from the schemes of the devil. Now, don't forget the righteousness that Christ has given us. More about that in just a moment. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, you and I wear shoes for comfort. We wear shoes for um, style. We wear shoes for a lot of different reasons. To a soldier in a battle, to a Roman soldier in a Roman battle, your feet are very, very important. Because if I'm sitting here in this battle and my line of troops is fighting against your line of troops, and if I slip on the ground, I'm dead. I can't slip. I have to keep my feet firmly planted. And remember, there's the ground, and then there's the blood, and there's all the junk, and that ground is going to be wet and slimy, and I have to stand my position. So what they would do is they'd actually put nails facing downward out of the bottom of the shoe, what we would refer to today as cleats in an athletic competition, because I want to be able to plant my foot and I don't care how murky that ground gets. I want that foot to stand there. I want to stand firm. As shoes for your feet, put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, this is interesting. The gospel of peace. You know that we're told to be peacemakers. We are told to pursue peace. But remember, peace is reconciliation. If I'm at peace with a another person, that means our troubles are reconciled and we're living in a right relationship. But if I have peace with God, then my relationship with God has been restored. It has been restored from the fallen condition that I was in apart from Christ. So the gospel 
is what brings a right relationship between God and me. And because of that firm foundation, the gospel who has reconciled me to God, I can stand. Because you see, if I think that my relationship with God is somehow based upon me doing a certain number of good works every day, then tomorrow when I don't do them, the ground is going to feel, feel really slippery beneath my feet. But I, if I have the confidence of the gospel, if I have the confidence of the gospel, I can stand in that confidence that I am in a right relationship with God. And as for your shoes, as for shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. The shield of faith. Now, we had a long discussion when we went through the book of Hebrews about what faith is. My simple understanding is faith is believing that what God says is true is true. If God gives a promise, God is going to fulfill that promise. And that is faith. Faith is believing that what God has said is true. It is interesting so that you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. What are those darts that get tossed at you? Well, I always liked a uh, quote from a Puritan writer who said, the devil has two tricks. One is to convince you before you sin that sin has no consequences. The second is to convince you after you sin that sin has no forgiveness. Think about that. You're sitting there and you're at the ready almost. And the devil comes along and says, see that temptation over there? See that fruit? Wouldn't it taste good? Wouldn't that temptation be okay? And besides, it doesn't matter. There's not going to be any consequences. You just said that you believe that Jesus Christ saved you, so there's no consequences for your sin. And you go, I think I'll do it. And you sin. And after you sin, the Holy Spirit, if you are a believer, the Holy Spirit convicts you and says, oh, I need to confess my sin and receive forgiveness. And the devil comes along and says, you know what? That thing that you just did, it was so bad. God will never forgive that. God will never forget that sin. You just spit in God's face. Why are you going back to God? God hates you, etc., etc., etc. So the devil is sitting here throwing these flaming darts, these ideas into your head. And how do you stop them? You hold up the shield of faith. The shield of faith says, God says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the devil says, ah, here's a dart. God's not going to forgive you. And we raise up the shield of faith and that dart hits that shield and it has no effect on us. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. I mentioned above, you know, I have trouble overemphasizing the importance of truth. The same applies to faith. Remember Hebrews, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For those who come to him must believe that he is, exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek after him. Without that shield, you are open to every attack that is sent your way. If we do not know the promises of God, if we do not believe the promises of God, if we do not return continually to the promises of God, the devil is going to sit there and throw those darts and we are going to fall victim to them. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Now it is interesting 
this is just kind of an aside. You may or may know this, but I read a lot of military history. I've done it my entire life. In fact, I probably don't read as much now as I used to. But I read a, a book one time about a Greek phalanx. You know a Greek phalanx? Everybody has their shield. Everybody has their spear. And there's a wall of them. And that's how they would go into battle. And the, to the Greek, the spear is very important because that's how you're going to attack the enemy. But what's even more important is the shield. Because you see, the shield isn't just protecting me. Remember, if I'm right-handed and every Roman soldier fought right-handed, I've got my weapon, in the Roman case a sword, in the Greek case a spear, and so I've got a spear and I've got a shield in my left hand. And that shield is protecting most of my body. What's protecting this side of my body? My neighbor's shield. My neighbor's shield is protecting me. So as long as we all keep our shields up, we provide protection for each other. Now, we certainly don't believe that my faith can save other people. But my faith can help other people in their struggles. My shield of faith can help those around me to see the promises of God and to help them also in their struggles. Just an interesting observation. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So what does a helmet do? Well, it protects your brain. I mean, let's face it, the brain is kind of important. And if somebody's over there with a big sword or a club or an arrow and he whacks you in the head, you're in deep trouble. So you put on a helmet to protect your head. What is that helmet? That helmet is your salvation. It is interesting how all of these tie together. We have the gospel of peace. We have reconciliation with God. We have that through our salvation that is provided for by God. So we have the righteousness of Christ that allows us to work it out in our protection we have all of these working together to protect our head from attacks by the evil one. And finally, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. In this list of pieces to the armor of God, the sword is really the only offensive weapon in this list. I know that in certain times, if you have to, you can whack somebody with your shield. But that's not what shields are intended for. The sword is the offensive weapon. How am I going to defeat the enemy? I'm going to defeat the enemy in the same way that Jesus Christ defeated Satan when he was tempted in the wilderness. By the word of God. So, you hear this voice. It may be a demonic force. It may just be your flesh talking to you. It may be someone trying to lead you astray. Do you say, God says, don't do that? Or, God says, do this? Do you understand the word of God enough that in that moment of temptation, you can take that sword of the word of God and apply it in that particular situation. I've told you many times before, I've read passages in the Bible that I just didn't really understand. And years later, I would be in some situation and I believe the Holy Spirit would say, you know that verse you didn't understand? This is what it means. Ah, now it makes sense. I remember when I was uh, a youngster at a good Baptist church, we had what we called sword drill, where you learn to find things in the scripture very quickly. You learn to uh, memorize certain passages. Why? Because you have to exercise your sword. You and I have access to more copies of the scripture than any group in church history. 
we have multiple copies. I couldn't begin to tell you how many copies of the Bible I have lying around my house. But when I'm out there in the real world and the fiery arrow comes or somebody says something, there's some temptation or something happens, at that point, I'm not going to run home and grab a Bible off the shelf. I need to know the Word of God and have it ready for the fight. The sword is the Word of God. Now, in one sense, that ends the discussion of the armor of God. But verse 18 is oftentimes considered the extra piece of the armor of God. It says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. All prayer. In fact, all prayer is something referred to in Puritan writers. We need all prayer. What does that mean? That's next week's lesson. We'll pick up in verse 18 next week. So what is the conclusion to this lesson? Number one, there is a war going on. And the question for me and the question for you is, do we really believe this? Do we really believe when the word of God says we are at war? Conclusion number two, God has provided us with everything that we need to fight this war. Same question asked before. Do we really believe this? Do I really believe that God has provided what I need? Or do I think I have to go out here to some self-help book and get something else. I mean, what does a modern psychologist say about this war? Well, I'll tell you what the modern psychologist will say. The war is just a figment of your imagination. Don't fight that. Don't fight that temptation. That's just going to mess you up. Conclusion number three. We need to put the armor on. God has provided it. And we are commanded to put it on. So the question is, have we done this? Every day, do you strap on the armor of God so that when you go out into the world, you are prepared for what the devil is going to do? Therefore, conclusion number four, we are to stand and not run away. Where do we stand? We stand wherever it is that God has put us. So that's today's lesson. Thank you. I'll see you next week.